Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Beat, the only podcast which brings together the journalists and reporters who cover the club on a regular basis. If you're an Arsenal fan, you're probably feeling pretty smug after the perfect weekend. A 4-0 derby victory over Tottenham and in the process, making history with a new Women's Super League record of 47,367 fans and that was taken from their North London rivals too. I'm Molly Hudson from The Times, and joining me today to discuss the historic action are Art de Rocher from The Athletic and Max Jones, a freelance commentator who covers the Women's Super League and the Championship. Max, you haven't been on before, so can you tell us a little bit about you? And I think I can preface this by saying you're probably slightly more qualified to be on this podcast than both me or Art, because we spent all all of us spent about 10 minutes trying to work out how Tottenham was set up, and you were right. Yeah, yeah I was, uh, I think I was the only one, when the team news came out, I came sprinting over to you guys, didn't I, <laughs> trying to work out whether it was a back four, you know, we're used to seeing uh, Tottenham this season under Ryan Skinner with a back three, um, but yeah, back four it was, I got that bit right, I don't think I got anything else about the team right, other than Drew Spence, you know, playing that sort of number 10 role um but yeah it's it's great to be on and it's it's great to have another man talking about women's football I guess <laughs> that's exactly what we need <laughs> welcome welcome to the gang um what did you make of the the atmosphere at the Emirates yesterday because you know you've you've covered Arsenal for a while and um it, it was like a bit of a step up this weekend wasn't it yeah it's it's quite difficult to think about the weekend's game and talk about the significance of it without going back to how it was when when I started. So, you know, back in 2015, I think was the first Arsenal women's game that I covered. And it was me and probably three journalists in the press box at Meadow Park. Really dark Thursday evening because the scheduling was pretty rubbish as well. So, you know, there, there weren't that many fans there who couldn't make the game. It wasn't really advertised, wasn't really marketed that well. And you come to the game on Saturday and it's just just unbelievable. The, the number of people that you saw there who, who not only are Arsenal fans, but are fans of the women's team as well. They had, you know, Williamson on the back, Leah Velti's name on their back, whoever it might have been. Um, but one of the one of the great joys of the job that I had on uh, on Saturday was they sent me out before the game. They asked me to interview a load of fans and just try to um, get a sense of the atmosphere and I spoke to so many people who it wasn't just that it was their first women's game but it was their first foot and to me that seemed absolutely wild that they'd never been involved in football before and all of a sudden they're coming not even just to watch like a, a Premier League game but they're choosing to turn up for the Women's Super League against uh, Tottenham you know this huge game and I really really hope as I said to every single one of them at the end of the interviews I really hope that you catch the bug after this because it yeah it was it was an incredible atmosphere it was really really um do you know you got to give arsenal credit it was really well done it was so welcoming it was so accessible um the guys who work in the web team um aiden small lots of people will will know about him who follow the arsenal women's team but he did a brilliant job on social media and on the website of just making sure that if it if it was your first game you were able to learn a bit more about these players and then you've got obviously you guys covering it for the, for the press, but then also the fan blogs as well. So Tim Stillman um, did a lovely uh, little summary of 
what to expect from each player going into it. So I think the way that the women's football community and the club have made this as accessible, um, I really, really hope that that leads to these people coming back for, for more games in the future. It's funny you picked that out because I I had to do a piece for the time speaking to one of those fans that hadn't been to a game before and um, her name was Abigail Stevenson. Don't know if she'll be listening to this. She might do. She might see it on Twitter. Um, but she was saying that she'd, she'd come down from Rotherham um, and it was the first time she'd, she'd ever been to a, a big game. I think she'd seen a couple of the Euros ones when it was actually near her. Obviously, there was a few games in Rotherham during that tournament. Um and she, she admitted she was like, I was a bit daunted about going to a, a place as big as the Emirates, like coming down all that way. And she was like, I, I literally can't fault the club. They made clear about the travel. The, she said when they when she got into the ground, the stewards were so helpful, telling you where to sit. They were happy to take pictures um, of, of the fans in the ground, which is so nice because I think stewards often get a lot of stick, don't they? Um, so it's really nice to hear. And she she's already got tickets for the Emirates Arsenal Chelsea game. Um and she's also going to get tickets to Bourne Wood. I think the only thing that she said kind of could be done was to get uh, a coach of some sort from the Emirates to Bourne Wood, which I think is a fair suggestion because it is a bit of a trek. Um but yeah it's fantastic to see that I think the fans actually appreciated that from the club. And I think what the club did actually directly impacted the fans because sometimes I I don't think people actually realise that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've been privy to a few of the conversations in the past, um, especially during Montemuro days, where there was this whole idea of playing more games at the Emirates. But actually, Montemuro's argument was, no, we're not used to the pitch. It's only going to be a disadvantage. But I think that the way that the club were able to go, OK, look, it's a different pitch, but let's see if we can not only create the same atmosphere, but better atmosphere for you so that you can go out and, and do your thing um, was really good. And I think the the real telltale sign for the club as to how well they got that right, the hardcore elite, the ones who are used to going to Meadow Park and going to the lunchbox for, for food before the game, you know, that, that sort of vibe. Um, there were no complaints. I didn't see a single complaint about the game. And you know what football fans can be like. They can be quite partisan about certain things and match day routines that they have didn't see a single one of those everything that to come out of the of the afternoon was positive and I guess to wrap up my thoughts on it the fact that Beth Mead was able to walk when she got subbed off she was able to leave the field and walk around and every person stood up from their seat including some of the Spurs fans has to be said got up and applauded her for what she was able to do over the Euros and I think that was a really touching moment for me as a commentator. You know, I, I just had to pause and, and take a second just to realise how far this game has come in the time that I've been covering it. And I'm not trying to make it about me, but if I'm feeling that, then I, I can't even imagine how the players are feeling. Yeah, I agree. That was an incredible moment. And... I suppose you mentioned there what um, maybe the worries about playing there before. I know Art, we've done a few few games at the Emirates where maybe there's been sort of one stand that's full or not even that if it's been sort of midweek. And I wonder how much of a difference you felt it made to sort of keep that home advantage really because I suppose you worry when you go to a big stadium. If it's not full, you almost lose a bit of that sort of partisan home crowd that you do get when Bournemouth is packed out. 
Yeah, I think even for the opening game last season against Chelsea, you saw it was more of a, a mixed kind of crowd. So you had Chelsea fans mixed in with the Arsenal fans. You, you could actually hear them <laughs> booing uh, some of the Arsenal players, which I remember Beth Mead saying that she actually liked. Um, but I think going forward, the the approach always had to be, there has to be enough away fans for there to be an, a, an away end. Um because even though you do have uh, a really big home advantage with probably about 90% of the 47,000 that were there being Arsenal fans or there in the Arsenal end, um, I feel like that still adds to the experience. And I think Max brought up a really good point in terms of the, I guess, the dimensions of the pitch itself, because I think when you look at, um, the games that were played there last season um, compared to how they played against Tottenham um, the other day. I feel they, they just seemed a bit more comfortable on the Emirates pitch. Um, even when they played um, at Wembley for the FA Cup final last December, I think it was, you could tell the size of the pitch was probably, I wouldn't say a major problem, but it was something that they were still getting used to, I feel. Um, whereas at the Emirates, even in in the spring against Tottenham and then following into um, the other day, it just seemed like they, they were a lot more comfortable in their spacing, knowing where to be. And I think you saw that probably mostly in midfield with uh, Kim Little and Leo Volti, um, who I thought ran, ran the game extremely well. So I think... The big thing, and I know Jonas Edeval's spoken about this a lot, is just the s- sustainability of it um, and actually being able to create some consistency, not just with with fans, but I think also just figuring out the dimensions of the pitch is really important because I remember, I think, I can't remember who I was talking to. It was someone at, at Arsenal, but um, kind of brought this point up around the men's team. And they said that um, at Highbury, Thierry Henry had this one advertisement board that he he knew if he aimed for that, he would score a goal. Um, and it's, I don't think that would happen at the Emirates because it's such a big stadium. But it's little things like that where players can pick up markers um, just off random things in the stadium. And I think... Um, there's little things like that that can almost add to that home advantage as well. And you mentioned the kind of need for having away fans. Is that where you think Arsenal are at at the moment, where if they market these games around the really big fixtures that kind of have a narrative with them, you know, whether it's the North London Derby or whether it's Arsenal-Chelsea, which will probably be a sort of defining game in the title race. Do you do you think we still need that at this stage to to kind of have games there? Definitely. I just feel like, yes, you could maybe go for a more low-key league game, but I feel like when when you're probably planning these games out in terms of which ones get to be played at the Emirates, the, these are the games that people or Arsenal fans firstly care about, um, and you need them to care about it for other people to care about it, I think. Um, so I think going with uh, Spurs as the first one was probably the right call because that's going to get, I guess, the most people excited um, 
and then you kind of build off the back of that um whether they would have got a similar turnout for Arsenal Chelsea they might have done but I'm not sure um I feel like the the narrative was there for everyone to see against Tottenham um so it was almost an easy but correct choice to do it that way it was the perfect storm wasn't it really when when you consider the season opener last last time out was against Chelsea I think that was eight and a half thousand um you had another thirteen and a half thousand for the Champions League against Barcelona um and then there were far fewer for the for the knockout stage against Wolfsburg so I feel it was the perfect storm and that you had an international break, North London derby. Chances are Arsenal were going to win. Obviously, piggybacking on the on, on the back of the Euros. But I do feel like that Euros campaign has changed everything with women's football in this country. Now, we might not have all been quite so cheery, specifically Art, if Arsenal hadn't have won at the weekend. And ultimately, I think... You know, as great as it is to be playing at a big stadium, the most important thing I'm sure Jonas would have wanted was was a win from that game. Now, we've mentioned how how well Arsenal did in marketing this one. And Max, you mentioned there the the Euro, Euros kind of stars, obviously Leah Williamson, Beth Mead, Lotta Moy, and obviously Rafaela from the Copper America as well. Um, two of those got on the score sheet. Art, I want to start with you and Beth Mead. I know we we spoke <laughs> after the Brighton game and it almost feels like, what more is there to say about Beth Mead? She's just consistently brilliant, isn't she, recently? Um, uh, I wonder what you've made of her start to the season and I suppose that development that really she did so well in the Euros, but it, it was born out of her form for Arsenal, wasn't it, last season? Yeah, well, I think you have to really start with the Olympics last summer. That's where it probably all started being left out. Um, and it was quite... Men's tour. <laughs> yeah, it was quite funny at the time because she was very open about it and I don't think many players would would have been. Um, she she went as far as name-checking Hegar Risa, saying that she wanted to prove her wrong directly. And I think you saw with that, I guess the attitude that's been present throughout her career, whether it be at Arsenal or earlier on at Sunderland, where she's someone who can adapt really well. Um, so if you want to take that in a footballing sense, just look at her transition positionally under Joe Montemurro, going from a centre forward to more of a wide forward, who's still able to impact the game both in attack and defence. Um, but then if you look at that from, I guess, a mental standpoint, just how relentless she was last season in keeping those standards up and um, almost being, I feel like she was probably the driving force of Arsenal's um, title charge last season because I guess people will automatically gravitate towards Vivian Miedemar. But I feel like people may forget that Arsenal were going through a really big dip in form around Christmas, January time. And it was Beth Mead, I think it was against Brighton last season at Meadow Park, who pretty much swung the game in their favour. And that's where they started to get a little bit more momentum. And then, of course, the January signings helped with that. Um, in terms of this season, it's been really interesting because I don't even feel like she's 
gotten out of second gear yet um against brighton it i feel like the first half almost was just her kind of getting back into her rhythm um not everything went her way and i don't think everything has to but it was just interesting to see at some points it seemed like she maybe over tried in some circumstances and then in, in the second half it just kind of naturally came to her um and that just kind of flowed into the Ajax well more more the Spurs game but also the Ajax game I feel um and I guess the the challenge is um keeping that consistent over over the season and I, personally I think I don't feel like she'd have any issues in that regard um but I guess also what would be key is um Jonas Cedarval, the coaching staff and players keeping her honest in that as well, because I don't think it would be too helpful to almost wear blinders and um and be uh I guess kind of immune to, to criticism because um I, I don't think that would be very wise going into a season where again Arsenal will be trying to to uh, challenge for the title. She almost needs that edge to her game, doesn't she? She almost needs someone to prove wrong or something to go to go wrong. I think she she spoke quite openly that it was a, it was a tough year for her personally last season as well, and the the football was kind of something that like pushed her through that mentally. So I suppose <laughs> you always wonder what what Beth Mead will see now that everything is is going quite smoothly. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I think it was when. Um... So it was on the day of the final um, and it was BBC's coverage because Jonas was obviously part of their coverage team. And I think the question to him was, okay, now she's done with the revenge tour. What's the new motivation now? Um, and I'd be really interested to see if they've kind of found one between themselves um, or whether it is just carry on what you're doing. Um I guess part of that new revenge tour may be to actually win the title this time around um, and to maybe prove herself a bit more on the European stage at club level because um, that wouldn't just be an individual um, kind of task. It would be collective as well, which uh, I think we've all found out either of ours very big on over the past kind of year. So that might be the new thing, um, proving herself and Arsenal proving themselves in Europe and then also uh, actually going one step further in the league. There's obviously that that Ballon d'Or nomination as well. I've, I worked with her um, way back in the day on, on this piece, Arsenal.com, talking about her upbringing, talking about how grounded she was and how not that many people in her village believed that someone could go on and play women's football at a high level. That Ballon d'Or nomination for someone who has done her best work under the radar, is that going to be helpful for her or is that a hindrance? It's really, it's a funny one because I feel like a lot of people, not just Beth Mead, in, and this goes for people in loads of industries, I feel like they prefer doing all their like good work under the radar and then you saw when every time she's asked about 
uh, a big highlight. She just says, I'm just Beth Mead. Um, and I think that kind of speaks to her almost trying to not play it down. That's I think that's the wrong way to put it, but almost keep herself under the radar. As much as people will talk about her, I don't think she'd want to be concentrating on it too much. And personally for me, I I don't think there will be much of a change in say mentality or performance because of that. Uh, and I don't know what Molly thinks, but I, I just see see that as, I feel like she would see that as something that's kind of cool and then she'll reflect on it um, properly, probably when she has a break at some point. Um, <laughs> who, who, who knows when that will come? But yeah, I'm not sure what Molly thinks on that. Listening to you guys talk, it just reminds me of Viv. You know, when Viv nominated <laughs> yeah. for all these awards and she's like, so what sort of yeah. thing? She's not really, but she like, I feel like with Viv, she doesn't care whether she wins or she loses them. I think she's like, like ultimately it's about winning things with the team. And I think that not only comes from Viv's personality, but I think it's in Beth and it's obviously come from Jonas as well. So I think, yeah, I don't think it will make, a huge amount of difference for her, but I think it will make a difference for how other people view her because I think you're right that maybe she always flew under the radar a little bit at, at Arsenal because of Viv, and I know she did struggle as well in in under Joe for a little period. So, yeah, I think it's interesting to see, I suppose, again, what the Euros has done for some of those England players' kind of profiles, I guess, both on and off the pitch, you know, I dare say most people in England now know who Beth Mead is. And that's just, you know, that girl from Sunderland who who has kind of proven everyone wrong. So I, I think it's, yeah, I think it probably shows that, um, that change from the summer. I have to mention an, another Arsenal player who was, kind of hit the ground running this season, which is Rafaela. Now, I've probably butchered the pronunciation of that, and I think we need a friend of the podcast, Tim Stillman, to come on and do it in Brazilian. But, um, Max, what have, what have you made of her? And I suppose particularly from set pieces, it's just like against Ajax. Um, obviously, she scored the same way against against Spurs. Just She seems to be everywhere. Yeah, I think um, I think Tim will be quite keen to point out that it's Hafaeli. I think that's I think that's it. But um, yeah, that's I, the speaking. <laughs> well, for, for everyone's uh, for everyone's benefit, I'll I'll, I'll stick to uh, Raffaelli, which is what I've been going with, um, more anglicised version. Um, do you know what I, I've been so impressed with her? I think to come in midway through a season, and I I know that we're st- we're past peak COVID times, but it's still a bit unsettled. There are still a few things up in the air, a few um, things that you would do differently, I guess, in different countries. So she's come straight in and she, like Art mentioned earlier, was a January signing who helped towards the end of last season. But this season, she has been nothing short of exceptional. I think I didn't, I wasn't aware how good in the air she is. And I've, I've commentated on each of the, um, first three games of this season and I cannot remember anyone else having a header from a corner I think either she heads it or it goes over everyone's heads That's that just tends to be the 
the tactic, which I'm sure Art will, uh, will go on to a bit more. But not only that, I think Arsenal have done what I thought would be pretty impossible to do by finding a, a better or at least on par ball-playing defender to go with Leah Williamson, who you think, right, okay, we've got Leah, we we know that she can, you know, step out of defence and play that long raking diagonal that we that we know that she loves to play. With with Raffaele, you've got someone who not only steps out of the back and can pick the pass, but then she starts taking players on. And you think, hang on, where, where's this where's this back heel coming from? Like Cruyff turns in the middle of the park under pressure from two strikers who are looking to um to counter-attack. It's it's unbelievable to watch and you know, she she's the the woman who captained Brazil to the Copa America without conceding a single goal. That in itself is that tells you all you need to know about her leadership and how solid defensively she is. And I don't think there are any doubts about that. But what has really stood out is just on the ball and in those uh, the attacking third or the yeah the final third of the pitch for Arsenal. I mean, she's unmatched in the air. It's it's. It's genuinely really, really entertaining to see because every single time, I think it's, um, I think it's Leanne in the backroom staff um, at Arsenal. Every time that Arsenal have a corner, she's on her feet, and every time I'm thinking, surely the instructions the same. Just, just put it into that area, and you know that she's going to attack it. And after hitting the bar and the post against, um, was it Ajax in in, in uh, midweek? Um, she finally got the goal that, that she deserved and what a header it was as well. And Art, I'm going to go on to you, the resident tactics man. I know you've you've spoken to Jonas a little bit about the kind of set piece um, plan as well at Arsenal that's kind of, I think Leah, Leah and Lotta did pretty well last season through that and it, it seems a real source of goals actually, doesn't it? Yeah, it actually goes back to before Jonas came in. So, um I remember speaking to him at the start of last season about Lotta being a really good aerial threat because um, in my game, in my words piece with Katie McCabe, we spoke about her um, kind of flat deliveries from corners going, um, basically aiming for Lotta kind of in the six yard box back post kind of area. And I guess Hafaeli's kind of taken that, um, that responsibility now um but uh in in that kind of transition phase I think it was really a telling sign that Jonas kept on Leanne Hall and he also name-checked um Sebastian Barton who is the goalkeeping coach um so he said those two are probably the ones that are mostly involved with kind of the uh planning and execution around corners in particular um and I think you've seen uh, I was kind of looking back through the ones from this season and uh, in the first half against Brighton, there were uh, five flat deliveries to Hafaeli. Uh, in the second half, it kind of got a little bit more mixed with Leah and Lotta on the pitch. Um, but you've seen that's been uh, what they've tried to do, basically, in every game this year. And it was only a matter of time before they were going to score. And I know speaking to Jonas after the Spurs game, he said the the big thing about set pieces is just about having belief. So keep on doing, um, I guess, the right things uh, for your routine and eventually the goals will come because they're not, you can't predict that they're going to come at a steady rate. So 
it's more about just doing the right thing and then um at one point you will score um i'd also say it's really um interesting to see that both the men's and the women's teams are very strong on set pieces and i wonder if there's something that they've the two coaching staffs uh have kind of communicated on because i know Jonas is quite big on having that dialogue between um the men's and the women's teams so I don't know if that's something to ask him at some point, but um, uh, yeah, it's just quite an interesting development because they've actually worked in a few short corner routines as well. One of which led to a goal against Tottenham. Um, they also used quite a few against Brighton, which unfortunately didn't lead to a goal, but um, I'd say it's one of the more interesting developments of the team for this season. Just picking up on that, actually, uh, the the short corner which did lead to a goal. You're talking about the Steph Catley delivery. Yes. I mean, yeah. you're going to struggle to find a better delivery this season from a player with their weaker foot. I've rarely seen Steph Catley use her right foot um, throughout her entire time at Arsenal. She's <laughs> obviously so strong on her left, such a sweet delivery of that left foot. But with her right, I think that's probably about the only time I've seen her use it other than to clear the ball. And it was just perfect, wasn't it? So, yeah, I, th- I think you're right, switching things up. And actually, I would be interested to hear um, Jonas's thoughts on the whole chatting with the men's team um, coaching staff, because I think there is something in that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big uh, Nicholas Jobber advocate. So, <laughs> so I might ask him at some point, to be fair. <laughs> Women's Champions League hopes are also hanging in the balance. Now we're recording this on the Monday ahead of the second leg of the qualifying for the group stage tie. Um, it's level at 2-2 at the moment. Um, obviously, some of you may be listening to this after the game, but I think generally what that first leg showed is probably the strength in depth in Europe now. And the fact that English teams were maybe pretty dominant in the Women's Super League, you know, your Arsenal's, your Chelsea's, you know, barely lose a game all season, then go into Europe and and find it's it's really quite different. Um, Max, I, w- I wonder what what you make of that. How far off, I suppose, Arsenal are in terms of competing in Europe as well, because it does feel not just these this season, but last season as well, that maybe there's there's a little kind of step to go to make that next kind of platform yeah I don't know uh, I don't know where you guys are in terms of mentioning other podcasts on this podcast but or whether you're more BBC and no no other brands but I mentioned uh, I've mentioned I, I happen to listen to art on a different podcast uh, talking with a different host uh, <laughs> which well, may or may art, not be if related if art's doing it then it's art that's ruining it, isn't it? Yeah. apologies apologies <laughs> um, yeah art blog we'll call it but um yeah, so listening to him on that, talking to Tim Stillman, all about the the group stage and and the idea of whether we can make that now into a 32-team group stage. And I actually spoke to Tim about this as well because I was going to reply on Twitter, but I was also slightly worried that I was going to hang myself out to dry. So I'll try and explain my methodology here. Um, I love Jeopardy. I love the idea that every game needs to mean something. And I think you lose that a bit. Um, in the group stage of the Champions League. We saw last season 
Arsenal kind of ran out of steam a bit towards the end of the group stage. Um, you know, that, that game against uh, H, HB Koga um, kind of illustrated that for me. You know, the 4-0 the defeat, wasn't it, in the end, which was um, pretty pretty heavy. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm much more much more of the thinking that it should be the very best in the group stage. And I think given how much we all underestimated Ajax, and we did, and I don't think there's any shame in us admitting that that we thought that Arsenal were going to cruise through, um, given that this team were only really founded 10 years ago. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like all English clubs will have that sense that they need to be in the group stage. And I think it's a nice awakening to have this early in the competition to say, well, actually, there, there are other leagues doing this at a higher level on a more consistent basis. And I think the togetherness that Ajax showed in particular against Arsenal was was just really difficult for them to play against. I know you spoke uh, before, or you, you wrote a piece for The Athletic about uh, the pressing, didn't you? And how Arsenal were undone because they just weren't as as well connected on the pitch. Their, their on-field relationships weren't as tight as as the best in Europe. And, you know, we saw that against Wolfsburg last season. Um, and I, I'm hoping that it doesn't become a trend for Jonas Eidelberg's side. Um, it was much better against Tottenham. Um, so we do know that they can do it. But as as the coach said himself, it's about being able to do that on a consistent basis. And when, when really everything is on the line. And um, yeah, that brings me back to why I love, I love a 16 team group stage because I, I like the idea that you have to fight, you have to, um, you have to perform in each of those legs to earn your place there. And yeah, quite often, especially in England, in the men's champions league, the teams already feel like they've earned their place there. I don't like that. I'd much rather them fight for it and then possibly lose like Manchester City did against, against Real Madrid. I think it's good for the competition. A, a few of us spoke to Emma Hayes before, um, before the weekend's action and sort of unprompted, she kind of called it ridiculous and said, uh, and, and, you know, Chelsea are the team that benefits from all this because they won the Women's Super League and are straight into the group. But, she was kind of like saying it was ridiculous that Arsenal and Man City kind of having to go through qualifying. I wonder, I wonder if there's a kind of middle ground because <clears throat> I agree with you. You want to keep the, the Champions League as like a, an elite competition. But I also think, and I'm not even going to try and explain it because it's far too confusing, but the whole like qualification route with the champions and the, the league, league path. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, th- think, I think, I think, I think, sorry to jump weighted, in, Molly. It could be weighted a bit better. Yeah, and I, I think also perhaps those ties could be played a bit later. You know, they come in so quickly, don't they? You know, Man City had barely made it into September and they were out of the Champions League. So it, it seems it seems harsh that you're not really able to make it up to speed before you've got this huge game, which probably dictates the entire course of your season, especially from a financial point of view. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel... In my opinion, it's better, but you are right. There are things that you can do to work towards some sort of compromise. Um, I'm just, I'm very pleased I don't need to be making those decisions myself. <laughs> and to be fair, I think we're like the managers and us are probably giving them a bit of stick here, but this only came in in the 21-22 season, this format. And I think it shows just how quickly strength in depth in Europe has, has kind of changed. In literally a season where we're like, no, 
this is completely unacceptable. All of these good teams aren't making it in. Whereas I think when they were coming up with this structure, they probably worried a bit that there wasn't that strength in depth in Europe. So, yeah, I, th I think it's also a reflection of of how quickly um, women's football is is growing and changing at the moment. Um, but uh, I suppose more generally looking at, at Arsenal and the way they bridge the gap, I know Jonas has, has been an, an advocate for, for playing the, the boys' academy. And I wonder if you can kind of explain why that's good and what it can do because they've only had one game at it so far so it doesn't feel it doesn't feel quite fair to say oh look he's he's really come up with this strategy and it clearly hasn't worked because they drew with Ajax but it's it's not quite developed enough yet is it yeah I think it's still very much in its infancy at Arsenal obviously other clubs have been doing it for a while especially in the US and then you look at Barcelona and Chelsea as well in in England but at Arsenal it is a, a I guess a thought that is still very much at its beginning stages um he first mentioned it Edeval uh after the last game of last season so the West Ham win uh where um I asked him what he kind of was looking to improve ahead of this season now and he basically said how they play against teams in Europe uh, who man mark, uh, which is a theme that kind of ran across their whole season. I think the Barcelona games in the group stages, the Wolfsburg games that Max uh, mentioned earlier. Um, and again, the Ajax game uh, last week where I don't think they were particularly bad in the way they pressed. They actually did well in forcing Ajax back to their own goalkeeper and then forcing her into long clearances, which, surprise, surprise, Hafaeli <laughs> uh, won the aerial jaws. Um, but it was just that that one-off moment they had where they didn't know who was the one who was supposed to press. And I think as a more kind of general point, um, that is what they're looking to use those kind of, I, I guess you'd call it more experiences against the academy boys for, um, because you can basically the idea around it is start at the under 15s age group where they may be um, a little bit more physically developed than the women's team uh, but then you gradually or they gradually get used to that uh, and then you kind of bump it up um, the age groups from there um, and I think that's where you see they'll have less time on the ball to make decisions, but also less time um, to make decisions without the ball uh, when the boys' teams are in possession. So it actually works both ways where you're not just using those sessions to improve your own kind of ability to deal with a press, but you're also working under... Um, working with less time when you have the ball. So you have to make those decisions a bit more quickly. So I think it would, uh, the end goal basically would be to become quicker in your decision-making both with and without the ball. And I think that's something that will probably take a fair amount of time. Um, you can obviously see domestically, I feel like their pressing games e improved even from last year. 
um, in the games against Brighton and Spurs. But then it's just a different level in Europe at the minute. I think they were just reminded of how high the, the kind of benchmark is in European football against Ajax. And um, they've got another big test uh, coming up. Thank you for joining myself, Art and Max. If you're looking for more from the Arsenal beat over the international break and towards the start of the Premier League, check out our latest special, Gift of the Gab, looking at the rise of Gabriel Jesus.